Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello, welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. My name is Tom Marvin, Senior Technical Editor here at BikeRadar.com and MBUK Magazine. Joining me around a, a rather nice little table in sunny California is George Scott. He is Bike Radar's Editor-in-Chief. George, why are we in California? It's a great question, Tom. We're in California for the Sea Otter Classic, one of the, I think it's fair to say, one of the most important trade and public cycling tech shows on the calendar my first time out here and I've had a lovely first day. It's been rather nice. It's kind of like the first uh, real opportunity of the year for the bike industry at large to stretch its legs, hit up the trails, talk shop uh, and drench up some of that important vitamin D. Um, lots of vitamin D. Lots today. of vitamin D. Uh, we're at Laguna Seca, the racetrack, the famous racetrack. Um, but actually we are just uh, in a little town, um, Delray Oaks, I think it's called, mm-hmm. um, which is why you can probably hear some tree noise, a little bit of traffic noise, uh, and potentially the occasional aeroplane flying over the top. So we do apologise uh, that we're not in our usual studio, uh, but we didn't think flying back to Bristol to do this little roundup was worth it. Uh, it's quite a long way. Think of it all as context and colour from the patio of our Airbnb. <laughs> there we go. So today on the podcast, uh, we're just going to bring you our five favourite things from the show from today. I've got five, you've got five. Uh, Shall we start with yours, with your first one then, George? What was, uh, what did you like to see? I'm going to make life difficult for myself with my first selection because it's a product or a series of products that are much easier to appreciate by looking at them. Uh, So do go and look at them because they'll be in our roundup from day one at the show. But it's a company called 5Dev, which is a San Diego-based company that makes CNC-machined Cranks, pedals, chain rings, and stems. It's one of those companies that's born out of a much bigger company that's nothing to do with cycling. That's a company called Five Axis, or Fifth Axis, I should say, which is a CNC machining company that makes really complex parts across a variety of industries, but was founded or, or was certainly run by two super keen mountain bikers that have been riding for, I think, the best part of 30 years and have founded Five Dev as a, a sub company out of Fifth Axis using that CNC machining expertise to make some super distinctive and yeah just some really crazy looking products that you know won't be for everyone from an aesthetic point of view but really caught my eye particularly the new cnc machined titanium cranks which have almost an angular lattice like structure um so yeah certainly one that jumped out at me at the start of the show mm-hmm they kind of like, the, the crank arm's like an elongated diamond almost in shape. Is that the ones you meant? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So almost like an elongated diamond in terms of the overall shape of the crank itself. And then within it has much of the middle of the, the, the crank arm itself missing with that lattice-like structure. Mm-hmm. As I say, much easier to look at on a screen. So do go and look at our roundup on bikeradar.com. But I thought I'd start with a, a tricky one to describe for the podcast, but definitely one of my highlights from day one of the show. Did you speak to them at all? Did they have any claims about it? Why are they doing it other than they can charge lots of money for it, I presume? <laughs> That's certainly one of them. I think this is fair to say one of those products that you don't necessarily need to have. But if you do want something different on your bike and from an aesthetic point of view, it works for you and it won't be for everyone, then you know there will be a market out there. In terms of claims, claim weight of 530 grams, 
uh, with the spindle or 600 grams with a chain ring. They've also got a, a number of other products on show at the Sea Otter Classic. So we saw Five Dev's new road and gravel crank, which is, a, this one's actually made from aluminium or aluminum, I should say, in the US, as opposed to titanium. And it's essentially a slimmed down version of the existing mountain bike aluminium crank. Again, with that distinctive lattice design. They're also working on a gravel stem in 70, 80 and 90 millimeter lengths. And that's to go alongside the current 32, 40 and 48 millimeter stems that they offer for mountain biking. Again, these are made from titanium, titanium as opposed to aluminium. And I also saw the two pedals that 5Dev offer. There's a trail and enduro version with center pins on the middle of the pedal for additional grip. And then an all mountain version with no center pins for a rider who will typically like to move their foot around a bit more on the pedal. So a really interesting, a small range of products, but a really interesting range of products from a company that clearly knows what it's doing when it comes to CNC machining. And as I say, certainly one of the products that caught my eye as soon as I walked into the show. Nice. Okay. Well, I'm going to kick off uh, with the EXT Aria Shock or Aria, Aria, Aria. Not really sure how they pronounce it. It's the, the Italian brand's first air shock. Um, and it's pretty unique. So it's probably one of the most adjustable and tunable shocks on the market at home usable user point of view. Um, obviously, a lot of shocks can be heavily tuned uh, by a tuning shop, but this one um, goes the extra mile uh, that you can do it yourself. Uh, the key to it is a dual positive air spring. Now, I did run full story uh, on this new shock on the website a couple of weeks ago, but this is the first time I've seen it in person, um, and it is pretty cool. So there are two uh, positive air springs, the plus spring, uh, kind of acts like your normal air spring. So it's what you use to set the sag and its sort of main impact on ride fill is in the early and mid stroke. Um, and then there's a plus plus spring and this is the secondary one. And this controls right towards the end of the shock stroke. So basically controls the ramp up of, of the unit um, and it replaces the need for a volume spacer. So in a traditional uh, air shock, you might run a volume spacer to reduce the internal volume of the positive air spring, which creates that ramp up towards the end of the stroke. But adding volume spacers does have an impact on the earlier part of the stroke where you might not want it. So EXT's argument is that by having two positive springs, you can have independent tuning of the early and mid and later stroke of the shock. So it basically looks like a normal shock or a very fancy normal shock, um, but it's got two positive valves to put into it. In addition to the two positive air springs is a, an adjustable hydraulic bottom out damper. Um, so when you get right to the last 10 to 15% of the suspension stroke, um, you have adjustable adjustable progression. So you can adjust it between an extra 30 to 70% of extra progression, and it is adjustable with a little dial on the shock. There is also a lockout lever on there that is also adjustable. Um, so you can have it like fully locked out, like as you would on, I guess, a traditional shock. So it feels very, very, very firm or very firm. Or you can wind all the way off and basically have the lockout pretty much on all the way. Um, and the platform that it creates is very low, so the, the shock is effectively locked, but it's open, which gives you loads of platform until you hit a real big hit. And they were saying that the while there are other shocks that you can run locked out but feel like they're open, this one really doesn't have any sort of issues when you do hit those bigger hits. The shim stack doesn't deform, it doesn't sort of create any problems. So basically, the XT Arrow Shock is a highly adjustable really nerdy geeky shock that you can play with to really tune how your bike feels um, it's priced at just over a thousand dollars so it's not cheap um, but uh, there's plenty of people i think who are going to be interested in that so this is exd's first shock 
Is that correct? It's their first air shock. First air so shock. So they have a number of coil shocks. So Rob Weaver, who's our technical editor in chief, he's been running one for a little while, and he um, he's been really impressed with it. They feel really, really good, but this is the first air version. So that'll save a bit of weight, add a bit of tunability. Uh, it's also easier to tune for different rider weights because instead of having to swap a, a spring, you know, it's usually made of steel uh, and it's a bit of a faff to change. Uh, you can just pump it up or pump it up twice because there's two air springs. I've just revealed my question there that I know next to nothing about shocks <laughs> and certainly next to nothing about EXD coil shocks. But the one question I did have is what type of rider would be looking at this in terms of you know travel and riding style that kind of thing so this is going to be a shock so it's kind of like a piggyback shock in that there's um extra oil volume in there so it has all these adjustments the, the dials other than the air spring held in this like piggyback block that sits exterior to the air can so to speak so this means that the shock is probably um aimed at the more aggressive rider so aggressive trail riders enduro riders Maybe downhill riders, I'm not too sure. You know, maybe XT will say maybe it isn't. I'm not 100% sure on that. But yeah, certainly at the more aggressive end of the scale. Excellent. There we go. All right, move on. Move on, number two. Number two from me is a bike that wasn't necessarily sitting at the front of the Pinarello stand. They had a new Dogma F colorway on show there. Quite nice, kind of baby blue into black. But it's actually a, a Pinarello that's flown under the radar a little bit or slipped under the radar since it was launched. I think towards the back end of last year, Pinarello said. Um, since then, it's been very busy for Pinarello. They've launched the Dogma X, which has effectively replaced the Paris in the road range, and the Nitro, which is Pinarello's new e-road bike. But the bike that I am talking about is one that I'd never heard of, and that is the Pinarello Granger X, which is effectively Pinarello's take on endurance gravel, okay. let's say. Endurance gravel? Is that now a thing? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm making it a thing. But in the Pinarello range, you have the, the Gravel F, which is their race slash performance gravel bike mm -hmm. and that sits at the top of the range like the dogma f does on the road side of things whereas the granger x is the second tier bike so i'm reluctant to say an everyday gravel bike because it is a pinarello but it goes alongside the dogma x as the second tier road bike so this is effectively pinarello's stab at a bike that sits in the more affordable area of the market let's put it that way is it less racy than the top end bike? So is it a bit tall at the front end, a bit slacker, that sort of thing? So tweaks to the geometry and also just across the bike to reflect the fact that it's not necessarily pitched as a gravel race bike and, and one for bikepacking duties, for example. So it has a, a round seat post. So firstly for simplicity, secondly, so you can run a dropper if you want to. It has top tube mount, so you can mount a top tube bag and it's got rack and guard mount. So definitely one that is aimed to offer more versatility, more practicality compared to the Gravel F, which is a very focused performance and racy gravel bike. Okay, so given that it's a Pinarello, I'm guessing it's not coming in at the £2,000 mark. No, it is at the more affordable end of the spectrum for a Pinarello. Uh, I think there's only one build, certainly only one build in the US, and that's with mechanical GRX 600 for $3,800, I believe. So... Three and a half thousand pound, maybe. Yeah, give or take. It's a Pinarello. There'll be the, the Pinarello brand tax on that RRP. Mm -hmm. You can get more affordable gravel bikes with GRX 600. But as I say, it's certainly at the more affordable end of the spectrum for uh, a gravel bike from Pinarello. Lovely stuff. One final detail, I should say, and that is 50 millimeter tire clearance or 2.2 inches on 650B wheels. So, yeah, you know, it's an interesting gravel bike from Pinarello 
certainly fills a hole in the range and certainly fills a hole for Pinarello in the wider market. This is an area that they need to be playing in because, as I say, the Gravel F is very focused, very expensive, and that's not necessarily where the volume is in the market. It's interesting, the tyre clearance. As someone I was chatting to today was saying that basically if you're doing a gravel bike now, it has to come with 50mm clearance. Otherwise, what's the point? Too old school. Too old school. Yeah, interesting looking bike. And again, uh, including this in my road and gravel roundup from Sea Otter, so do go and take a look. Lovely stuff. My next one is, it's a very limited um, product that I can almost guarantee that nobody who listens to this podcast is going to get their hands on. But it is interesting. Continue. On the list. It is the post-industrial waste Cali Cascade helmet. What a mouthful. Yeah. It doesn't sort of slip off the tongue, but it is a very, very cool product. Um, so at the moment, there are 20 in the world. Um, and Cali told me that they haven't quite worked out who and how they're going to get rid of them. So... Um, <laughs> You're really selling it to yeah, me here, Tom. <laughs> it might be a case that if you buy a regular Cali, that they might just send you the post-industrial waste one, or maybe it'll be a prize, or maybe they won't sell them, who knows. But anyway, the interesting thing about this is that the helmet itself is made up of basically the waste products from other helmet, well, from other production runs of those helmets. Um, the reason why they're so unique is that obviously different bits of plastic get used in different places. Um, and it's just like, I, I guess, to highlight that there is a lot of waste that goes in when they're producing products um, and they're trying to use this in a way that is a bit more creative, a bit more interesting um, and has built this yeah, really unique looking helmet. The Cali Cascade itself is still quite an interesting helmet. Uh, I was chatting to them a little bit about it too. So this is like the regular helmet that you can go and buy. They say that within the uh, production of this helmet, they have reduced by 58% the carbon footprint of the helmet because even though it's the normal one you can buy, they're still using some interesting materials. So the straps uh, are made from recycled PET plastic. So that's the plastic you get from water bottles or, you know, bottles of water and Coca-Cola, that sort of thing. Padding uses bamboo strands in there. Uh, the EPS foam, which is that sort of soft foam that's used for the bulk of the helmet to, to cause the protection or create the protection, is reclaimed from a car manufacturer. Um, and the visor is made from plastic recovered from the oceans. Um, so even though that is a standard helmet, it's still got really cool sort of sustainability story. But that post-industrial waste cascade, I think, is a, a real nice little thing to see. So there's only 20 available now, but yeah. do you think this is a nod to the future and perhaps what Cali might be looking to implement in terms of improving the sustainability across all of their helmets? I think I think the things that they've done for the regular Cascade with the pet helmets and the bamboo and that sort of thing is, you know, I think it's the first of their range which has such a broad range of um, reused or recycled materials in there. Um, I think the post-industrial waste one, you know, inherently because it is made from the waste products of the rest of the helmets, they're never going to be able to make a full production run of it. But um, I think they're keen to do more of them. There you go. Certainly one to watch. Sustainability across the industry is a hot topic or needs to be a hot topic. So good to see a brand experimenting. Yeah. Great. Well, let's move on to my next one. And there might be a collective sigh across our podcast listeners, because this is a product that we've known about for a long time, and even, even if it hasn't been released yet. And that is the Vittoria Corsa Pro Tire. As I say, we've spoken about it on the podcast a few times. It broke cover on Team Jumbo Visma bikes at the end of last season. This is a new road race tyre and has been used extensively over the start of the season, most notably notching up wins at Milan, San Remo and Paris-Roubaix with Mathieu van der Poel. However, interestingly, it was on show on the Vittoria stand at Sea Otter, and this is a public show as well as a trade show, so suggests that a release is 
surely imminent. But notably, what we didn't know about this tyre is that there would actually be two versions, and there were two versions on show here. So there's the Corsa Pro that we've already seen, but there was also a Corsa Pro Control on the Vittoria booth. Now, the Control moniker has often been used in the past to describe Vittoria's sturdier tyres, so a bit more puncture and sidewall protection. And whilst Vittoria are still remaining fairly tight-lipped about this tyre, as I say, there's no official release yet, we can assume that's the case again here. So it's effectively a more everyday race tyre as opposed to a race-only tyre. And when the launch actually happens, this might be the tyre that's actually more appealing to the majority of riders because of that extra puncture protection that you do get. Nice. What sort of range of sizes are these tyres coming in these days? That is a good question. We don't know for sure because they only had limited sizes on show here, but what we do know is that the Corsa Pro will certainly be offered in a 28, a 30 and a 32. I think that's the case because we've seen all of those sizes on show on Mathieu van der Poel's bikes over the last few weeks. However, I did also see the Corsa Pro here at Sea Otter in a 24mm size, which is pretty old school by today's standards but shows that there is still a market out there and there will still be plenty of people running bikes with limited clearance so it will also come in a narrower size or certainly a more traditional size i'm going to show my um, maybe my ignorance of the road bike tire market but is it tubeless is it tubular is it clincher it's hookless tubeless compatible but as with any tubeless tire it can we run with a tube yeah as i said that's all we know about it at the moment but this is a tire that we've known about or we've certainly seen on the pro circuit for the best part of four to five months now. So with the summer season coming up, surely a release is around the corner. Very good. My next product kind of ties on from the theme of my Cali uh, helmet in that it's a product that has a nod at least towards sustainability. I don't know if we could ever call any brand new cycling product of a, a high-end leisure activity particularly sustainable because ultimately we don't need to ride our mountain bikes or road bikes. But nonetheless, Forge and Bond's wheels are interesting. So basically they look like a, a carbon wheel and they do various ones. You know, they do like a, an Enduro one with 32 spokes. They do a, a more trail one with 28 spokes and they do a gravel version as well. And it kind of just looks like a, a standard, quite nice carbon wheel set. But what they've done is they have made their rims out of a slightly different material. So your normal carbon rim um, is built, of, of, built up of carbon fibers and then like an epoxy resin. And this epoxy resin itself can only really be heated through once, uh, I believe. And is also, it's quite a brittle, rigid structure. Um, so Forge and Bond are using, well, they've replaced the epoxy with um, a nylon, I guess a nylon glue sort of thing, um, which can be heated and cooled multiple times. It also needs much less care when you come to storing it. So when you're storing your um, epoxies for, for carbon fiber, they need to be cold stored. Basically, the whole point of the nylon stuff is that it's easy to work with. It can be heated and cooled multiple times, which means that um, they first bond the different layers up and then they forge it in, in heat presses um, to get their process done. So it's a bit more sort of unique and interesting in that respect. But what I particularly like about it is that the material is much easier to effectively recycle because um, that nylon can be melted down and, and moved on in a much easier fashion than a carbon can be, uh, well, a normal carbon fiber can be uh, recycled. Obviously, when you're, you know, if you break your rim, uh, then they are going to cut that rim up into pieces. So you're never going to build a new rim um, out of an old rim, but that material can easily be used for, uh, you know, they've, they've given me like a, a tire lever and they say that the 
properties of the tire lever in terms of its strength and its stiffness is identical to that of the previous material. It's just that the strand lengths are a little bit shorter. Um, so there's sort of like a nice little sustainability story in there. And I think they, I think they said to me, now don't quote me on this, but if you do break a rim for the cost of postage, they will replace that rim for you. So it's only going to cost you however many pounds or dollars to, to replace a rim if you do snap one. As I say, don't quote me entirely on that, but I'm 99% sure that's what he told me. So there's that there's the nice little sustainability story with that. But also they're saying that the material itself is better than a traditional carbon rim. So as I said, your epoxy is quite a stiff, brittle material, um, but the nylon material has a bit more sort of, I think they call it a microflex within there. So it should give the wheels a little bit more compliance, which should ride to improved ride characters. So if you're rattling through some rocks, you're less likely to get pinged offline. Um, so they reckon not only is it better for the environment or easily to recycle, it's also easier to build and better for your riding. Just mountain bike wheels? No, nope. so they've got gravel on there as well. Um, I don't know if they do a road rim or not, but um, certainly sort of across the dirt spectrum at least. Interesting. Um, I've got a set coming for test later this summer, so it'll be interesting to see if they do fulfill those claims. You know, when you ride stiff carbon wheels, you know, carbon wheels can be great, but I've often found that carbon wheels are quite uncomfortable. I'm not actually a massive fan of them. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how good these ones are. I think our best ever performing podcast is... <laughs> me moaning about carbon wheels. I think it is. I think I think the numbers speak for themselves on this one, Tom. So um, yeah, it'd be interesting to get those in and, and understand from a ride quality and performance point of view if there is any tangible difference, mm. um, yeah, for better or worse. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think if you want more information on the material itself, it's probably best to go to Forge and Bond's website because they have got loads of information on there. I have distilled it into a, a not very well distilled <laughs> selection of bits of information, but certainly interesting stuff. Um, and they're making a bit of a splash uh, in the mountain bike world at the moment. Interesting. Um, okay, I'll move on to my next one. I'm actually going to stick with Vittoria here. So, um, yeah, two for the price of one. Uh, and this is a brand new release from Vittoria, actually, at Sea Otter. So, whereas the Corsa Pro tyre hasn't been released, this uh, only broke cover at Sea Otter itself. And we're moving into the mountain bike world. So, this is a new tyre insert. It's called the Airliner Light. And it's uh, an insert for tubeless mountain bike tyres designed specifically for XC and trail riding, certainly light trail. So I think it's fair to say that Vittoria is certainly one of the brands pushing inserts across the board. Road, gravel, mountain bike, from a road point of view, the brand's inserts were prevalent at Paris Bay last weekend. But before we get too far into the weeds on this one, Tom, do you want to talk a little bit more about inserts generally and what they're designed to do? Yep, yeah, so inserts are basically... Uh hoops of foam that sit within the tyre uh, void. So some of them, like your Huck Norris, are like a, a flat foam that sort of sits uh, proud of the rim, so it doesn't sit on the rim, and sits really sort of in the full width of the tyre. And that's there, so when you bottom out a tyre, um, and you know if you hit a rock, then two layers of tyre hit the top of the rim wall, um, and that can either damage the rim wall or it can damage the tire itself and that's what leads to like a pinch puncture. So by having that bit of foam in between them, um, you're adding a little bit extra protection from both damaging the rim and from puncturing your tire. Most inserts these days sit around the rim itself and then into the tire void. And the point of that, again, is to provide that protection, but it also adds additional uh, lateral rigidity or stability to the tire. So, you know, if you grab your tire on a rim, if it's at you know, 20 psi and you can wobble it side to side. And obviously when you ride the bike and you corner, the, the tire deforms. So the inserts give additional um, support to the tire sidewall. And not everyone, but many people claim that that improves the ride characteristics. 
They also, because of the protection and because of that additional sidewall stability, allow you to run slightly lower pressures, which you know has an impact on both grip and rolling resistance depending on your setup. Um, so they are they are pretty popular. Before you jump in too quickly with the Vittoria ones, one of the other products I saw today actually was a, was a new trail-orientated uh, product from Kushcore, which sits between their Pro and their XT. Uh, and they've given that a little bit more flexibility, flexibility than their Pro one, because actually people kind of find that inserts can have a negative impact on the feel of the bike, even if the performance impacts are positive. So um, they've got a slightly softer version, um, which is worth mentioning. But um, yeah, the Vittoria one. Just before I do go on to the Vittoria insert, this generally is a category that's not necessarily come out of nowhere, but it's a it's a completely new category. Mm -hmm. um, certainly on the road and gravel side of things, I don't know how long inserts have been prevalent in mountain biking. Inserts have had a, a funny history of mountain biking. It probably goes back, I'd say, six or seven years when Schwalbe released um, Procore, which was um, it was a very small volume. Uh, so most of these sort of inserts, they take up quite a bit of your space. That's another thing they can then impact on, because they change the air um, volume of your tire, they can also change the, the damping characteristics of your tire, but that's another point. Anyway, so this is a much smaller one. It was kind of like a basically an inner tube which didn't expand, and that sat around your rim, and you inflated it to quite a high pressure, and then you'd inflate on the outside. And you know it, that had benefits of stopping the damage and stopping punctures, but didn't have many other benefits. And it was expensive, uh, and it was faffy. But that was kind of like the first... And then you saw things like the Huck Norris, which is like a very simple flat sheath of rubber that went round. And, and they've got more and more techie as time has gone on, I guess. Um, but yeah, I'd say sort of seven, eight years have been around. Mm. Almost flying under the radar to a degree in that, and I made this point to Victoria, it's a product that you don't see on the bike. Mm. So you don't know necessarily, we don't know if someone's running no. an insert or not, unless they tell you or, or Victoria have made some stickers that their pro riders run on their rims or they have a, um, a specific... Um, tubeless valve for riders running. Or you see them battling on the trail side when they do have a puncture and it's an absolute nightmare. Exactly, that's the other point. If they're battling on the trail side or the tire comes off the rim, or you see someone, particularly from a, a racing point of view, uh, on the World Cup circuit or a pro road race, you see a mechanic installing it before the race. But yeah, generally you don't see it on the bike, so not necessarily a category that a huge number of people know about unless you're specifically looking for an insert. However, this new insert from Vittoria, as I said, it's called the Airliner Lite. It complements the existing Airliner MTB, very creatively named, in the Vittoria range. That one's designed for more hard-hitting mountain biking. This one, as I say, is designed for XC and trail. It's being used by Julian Absalon, two-time Olympic XC champion, five-time world champion, which obviously gives you an indication as to where this fits and who it's for. Just on your point around sidewall stability, that was a point that Vittoria were keen to make to me. And... Compared to the existing mountain bike insert, which has almost, a, if you imagine, a figure of eight turned on its side, that kind of shape, this has more of a diamond structure, which they say does provide more sidewall protection and sidewall support, specifically in this context for the lighter and flexier uh, XC tyres that you're more likely to run with this insert, and also to offer more run-flat protection. So a couple of numbers, it weighs 50 grams per insert according to Vittoria, and it's compatible with 29 inch by 2.1 to 2.4 inch tyres. Okay, so that's sort of bang on the money for XC tyres. I mean, a lot of XC tyres are now 2.4 inches wide, like I've got an XC bike test on going at the moment, and I think they all come with 2.4 inch tyres, so interesting times, cool. Uh, my next one is kind of on that XC flavor as well, um, and it's the 510 Kestrel Boa, um, which is a, 
it's not a new shoe from 510, but it's a complete reimagination of the Kestrel. So the Kestrel was like a lighter weight trail shoe and it had the classic uh, dimpled 510 flat sole um, with uh, obviously a cleat to clip the shoe. And we, yeah, it was just kind of like a lightweight trail shoe, really. Um, but they've changed it now into much more of a cross-country or potentially gravel if you're kind of maybe going into gravel from a mountain biker's perspective and you kind of want to stick with the brand because you know the fit and you kind of like the imagery. Um, and this is a first for 510, so it's their first XC-style shoe. So it has a much more sort of traditional XC shape, a bit more of a slimline construction. Um, its side profile has that kind of like curved up at the end toe that you know most XC shoes has and it features their stealth marathon rubber which I believe is a harder wearing rubber um, than the usual stealth C5 that you'd find on like a flat pedal shoe or a more aggressive um, trail and enduro clipless shoe. My little beef with XC shoes a lot of the time is that the sole, the, the, the treads on the sole are often like a real hard plastic and I sort of feel that like if you're riding an XC bike and you're getting off, it's because the, the terrain's got a bit too technical and you're scrabbling up some rocks or over some roots. And at that point, that, what you need there is all the grip of like a soft rubber. Not to be scrambling back Not down the mountain. No. And it's like, ah. Oh. So mate, it'd be interesting to see, but I think this is probably um, a really nice rubber to use on that. And you know, the thing, you know, people say, oh yeah, but it's soft, it'll wear out quickly. And it's like, well, the whole point of XC is that you generally don't get off your bike anyway. Um, so there's probably a lot less pushing around than, than you might do with like a downhill shoe. Um, anyway, that was a, a side point. Um, yeah, it looks like a basically a, a pretty cool XC shoe. Um, the upper is, oh, there's a theme, inadvertent theme going on. The upper is constructed from recycled materials, uh, while the shank of the shoe is built from repurposed materials um, and it's reinforced with glass fiber. So it's it's gonna be relatively stiff. It's probably not gonna be like a super stiff XC ratio, um, but certainly it's uh, on that side of the scale. At the top, it's got a vented toe box. There's protection in there for your toes as well. Um, and there's a boa dial backed up by a pair of Velcro straps. Is this the shoe? And I, I think it is because we ran a story on this on the site yesterday when we were traveling. So you may not have seen it, but I think this is the shoe that 510 described as their first down country shoe. Yes. Is that now a thing? Uh, sadly, I think it might be a thing. Do you know what? Actually, if I'm riding down country, I probably wouldn't wear a shoe like that. I'd, I'd still go with a trail shoe, like the previous generation Kestrel, which was a yeah, really chilled out trail shoe. But um, yeah, no. More XC than down country then? Yeah. Well, so, well, this is where you get into the into the fight of what is down country? Is down country a lightweight trail bike or a jacked up XC bike? Should we park it for another podcast? Let's park that for another podcast. All right, let's move on to my final pick. And I've actually got two to cover here, but from one company, um, and that is Bridge Bike Works, which is a, a small company out of Toronto, Canada. The first product I'm going to feature here is a really interesting one. So it's a proprietary uh, bottom bracket that Bridge Bike Works have been working on. It's a patent pending design where rather than having a bottom bracket sleeve that fits into the frame, the threads have been molded directly into the carbon frame to which the bearing cups screw in. Effectively, it's a threaded carbon bottom bracket. Really interesting. So imagine the threads molded directly into the frame. And then in this case, they've used the T40 for seven bottom bracket standard. The cups then screw directly in. So no need for a bottom bracket sleeve. So you're threading the, bottom, the metal bottom bracket into, into carbon threads? Exactly. Wow. So according to Bridge, this saves weight up to 100 grams, if that really matters to you, by removing the metal sleeve. Um, but importantly, from their point of view, and obviously I've seen this in a, a prototype form, but I haven't tried it, it avoids any potential misalignment issues by removing 
the additional part that sits within a traditional bottom bracket in the sleeve. It is also a threaded design, so where you sit on the threaded versus press fit argument is, again, a, uh, a discussion for another podcast, but hopefully no creaking. We'll run a story on this in more detail on, on the site. It's a really interesting design that uh, Bridge Bike Works are, are working on, um, so more to come on that one. Secondly, I'm going to move on to the frame on which this uh, new bottom bracket design has been applied in its first instance, and that's Bridge Bike Works' first frame, and that's the Surveyor All Road. Now, effectively, it's designed as an N plus one killer in Bridge's words, and you know, if you think of the aim here is to take a performance road bike, but to design it around 28 to 40 millimeter tires instead of say 25 to 32 millimeter tires. So it's all road or, or fast gravel. And to continue the theme, the geometry is described as all road race. So, you know, some tweaks and concessions to uh, I- I- endurance and comfort and tire clearance over a traditional performance race bike, but still has that classic road bike silhouette around seat post, but with a few modern twists and, and nods to flare and a fairly angular shape to the rear of the head tube and again, an angular shape to the inside of the dropouts by the four axles. So beautiful looking bike, handmade in uh, Toronto, Canada, where Bridge are based. And again, to put some numbers on this, weighs around acclaimed 900 grams for a, five, a size 55 centimeter frame. It also has internal cable routing, I said a round seat post, a threaded bottom bracket, and yeah, that's all we need to know at this stage. Okay. Very pretty looking bike. Yeah. Look forward to seeing it. So my final one is a is a bike as well. Um, and it's one that isn't released yet. And I've only seen a prototype mule of it. Uh, but I know that it is going to be released uh, in July. Fingers crossed. And it comes from Vetus, who are uh, a cousin brand to Nuke Proof. Um, but they tend to be very, very good value mountain bikes, and in our experience, like really good, like really good bikes, full stop across the range of you know road, gravel, mountain bike, and e-bikes. So this is the E-Mythic LT. LT means long travel, um, and as the name suggests, it's a, an electric version, kind of, of their Mythic uh, mountain bike. I say that because it kind of confusing. Well, it kind of confused me. So the Mythic is like a 140 mil aggressive-ish trail bike, which comes in a, a, a real decent price. Uh, they also have the Summit, which is their Enduro bike, and they have an e-Summit, um, you know, and those are long travel e-bikes. Um, but the Emethic itself, or the Emethic LT, is a 170mm fork with a 160mm rear end, so it's quite a bit more travel than the Mythic it's sort of co-named with. But anyway, that's kind of by the by. Um, there are two interesting things about it, but I'll come on to those in a second. Um, Geometry-wise, all the things you'd expect from, from Vetus, i.e. it's pretty good. Um, the large has got a 485mm reach, it's got a 64 degree head angle, 78 degree seat angle, 445 chain stays, uh, and it's a mullet. So nothing super crazy there, but you know, all good stuff. The battery pops out, so it's really quick to swap it. Um, to save costs, because this is going to be like a, a budget e-bike. It's sharing things like the linkages and the bearings with the current Mythique. Um, so there's been a lot of focus on keeping that cost down. And that's one of the you know the interesting things about this bike. The, uh, there are going to be three models, the VR, the VRS, and the VRX. And they're priced roughly from £3,300 up to £4,000. Obviously, that's rough pricing. But £4,000 for their effective top-end bike 
and it's an e-bike is pretty impressive stuff. Now, obviously, I don't know the specs, um, but expect uh, SRAM GX Mechanical on there, four-pot brakes, maybe a RockShox Super Deluxe and Zeb Forks on there, um, and I believe they're gonna be running V tires. There's not many brands running V as stock, um, but generally speaking, people are pretty impressed with V tires. Um, so I think pricing-wise, it's really aggressive, it's really interesting, and it's a good-looking bike. Motor and battery-wise, they have gone with Bafang. So that's quite a departure um, for a mainstream bike manufacturer not to use Bosch or Shimano or Yamaha, Fazu or that sort of thing. Um, and they believe that they are Bafang's biggest client. And this has meant that they've worked with Bafang on the development of the M510 motor to kind of tweak it to what they want. So they've got their own maps on the power curves. You know, when you turn it on the little screen that's on the handlebar that kind of looks like the Shimano Steps one, um, says, welcome to Vitus Bikes, you know, pops up the Vitus logo and things like that. So yeah, it's a, it's a mid-drive unit. It looks similar to all the other motors out there, uh, but it bangs out 95 Newton meters of torque, which is really impressive, up to 400 watts in its kind of race mode, um, which is a lot of power. Uh, and it comes with a 630 watt hour battery, which again, you'll be able to buy a spare so you could have effectively a 1260 watt hour setup if you just buy an extra battery. Um, and yeah, I just think it's really interesting that you know they've moved away from the big brands to go and work with a slightly smaller manufacturer, but have been able to tune it for exactly what they want in order to save a little bit of cost, but they say at no sort of harm in performance. Just from an availability point of view, you said hopefully July for this bike, but also significantly the fact that they are here at Sea Otter in the US they are now available in the US, or, or, or Vitas are pushing into the US. Yeah, so said. they've opened US distribution now, uh, and they're really happy. Like, you know, we chatted to some of the the UK guys, um, but they were really impressed. You know, their, their US team is set a great set of guys, uh, really good team, um, and yeah, it's a really important market for them, um, and I think they'll do well, to be honest. Well, there you go, Vitas now in the US. We've had great experiences in, in the UK. Um, generally speaking, as Tom said, and a new bike coming in the E Mythic. There we go, E Mythic LT. Aha, E Mythic yeah, LT. Yeah. Should we go for dinner? Let's have some dinner. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, George, for that. Um, lots of interesting things, and we've got a whole another day of trawling around Sea tomorrow. So uh, we will be bringing another podcast. I believe early next week. Early next week, yeah. We'll record it tomorrow or Saturday, and I think we'll publish maybe Tuesday to bring uh, part two and yeah, conclude our roundup from Sea Otter 2023. All right then. Thanks, George. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 